Uh, good to be back with you guys, and uh, that's exciting news about uh, ministry church plant through your church. Uh, I am really, uh, really experienced in being called to something new and exciting. Um, I've done that several times in my life, but as Scott said, you guys are working out the details. Let me tell you, the devil's in the details. I don't know what that expression means normally, but I'm just telling you that the details are sometimes sloppy and messy. <laughs> Uh, when I was coming here, God called me and my family to move all the way from Arkansas up here to Alaska. We sold everything we had, packed everything we were bringing on the plane, and got on the plane, and the plane caught on fire. Well, I'm not making that up. It literally caught on fire. There was smoke coming in, and it was, it was nasty. <laughs> so we had to ask ourselves, Lord, are you trying to speak to us, or is this the devil in the details? And uh, obviously, it was the devil in the details. We spent 10 years here, fell in love with you guys, and just enjoyed a fruitful ministry. And uh, that's why we're back visiting, because you, you guys are family to us. Um, then just one year ago, like almost to the day, we packed up all our stuff, and we shipped it off uh, to go to our new place of ministry in Nebraska. It arrived like three days ago, all that stuff. Uh, so we've been living out of suitcases a long time. It took 20 weeks to get our stuff. And... Uh, so we had to ask ourselves, hmm, Lord, is this, is this you or is this the devil in the details? And then the little things we had, we had eight suitcases full of uh, items that we were going to live out of for the interim time until our stuff got there. And uh, when we got to the Seattle airport, I had to get in a cab and go across town to get our vehicles, which we had shipped over there. And while Katie was in the airport outside of security with the kids, a baby, and eight luggages, um, some hooded guys came in and tried to steal all our stuff. And uh, security got involved, and luckily all our stuff was secure. Uh, we made it into our vehicles. Finally, after I got back, you know, I disappeared. Then all this happened, so she was left alone after a sleep-deprived red-eye. And uh, we had to ask ourselves, Lord, is this you or is it the devil in the details? Uh, and after a year of being there, I can tell you once again, Satan likes to spoil the call. He likes to do little things. He likes to poke and prod in the call to make you feel like maybe this is not what you're supposed to be doing. So I just say that as a word of encouragement as this unfolds. You guys just need to know that it will not go as smoothly as you think because the devil's in the details and he wants to ruin a good thing. But God will have his way and in the end it will all accomplish his work and purpose. Um, I haven't been gone long enough to not feel at home here. I know that because a couple of times this week I've went and got my coffee and uh, was driving back and was found myself driving to my house that I no longer own and that I'd be like arrested for trespassing if I went into and had to stop and like, oh yeah, I don't live there anymore and I had to come back here. We're staying in a camper back there. Which by the way, if anybody knows anything about campers, at 12.30 last night it started beeping through the intercom system and it hasn't stopped since. <laughs> I don't know what that is. I don't know what that means. There's no alarms going off like that are visible, uh, CO2 or anything like that. So if you know about campers, see me after church. We'll go fix that thing. Um, but let's get into the passage. The reason we're here this morning is not to hear about beefing campers. We're here to learn about God and to think theologically. And this morning we're going to look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. So when you find that in your Bibles, go ahead and stand with me and we'll read it together and then dive right in. Matthew 12, 1 through 14. It 
It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls in a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out his hand, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for giving us the privilege to worship you in song. And Lord, the opportunity to hear your word proclaimed. I pray, Father, this morning that your spirit would move and illuminate the text so that we might understand and know more about you, who you are so that we can understand who we are in your presence. And Lord, as we stand before you, I pray that we would submit to your word and your authority as you are the king of all creation. And Lord, I pray that as we submit to you, Father, that you would just transform our minds and hearts, change us into who you want us to be, Lord, that we might look more like your son, Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, who's never trusted in you, who's never spoken to you in faith, in repentance, turning from their sin and clinging to you for salvation, I pray that today would be that day, Lord, that they would not walk out of here without giving their lives to you in full trust and submission. I pray, Lord, for all these things to be done in the name of Jesus Christ, the name above every name, and the only name by which we might be saved. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Our passage this morning looks at Sabbath-keeping and Jesus's response to it, but I think at the heart of this passage is the topic of mercy, and we'll get into how those two connect together as this unfolds. Uh, But the context of this passage is found right after the end of chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 has a passage that many of you could probably quote. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, And I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you, it's easy, and my burden is light, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Jesus makes that statement about rest, and then Matthew, immediately following, includes this passage about Sabbath-keeping, which Sabbath-keeping is uh, dealing with rest. The Sabbath day is the day of rest, the day in which God rested from his work in creation week, the seventh day. And from there, it became a part of the Mosaic Law as the Old Testament covenant. They were supposed to rest every seventh day. And following that, they were to let the land rest every seventh year. And following that, they were to have a big old giant celebration of rest as they were uh, to have every seventh, seventh year, uh, 
time of jubilee where they would release the captives and restore land back to its proper owner. And there was just a lot that went on that emphasized this seventh day. So it was very important to the Jewish mind in the Old Testament. And now Jesus pops up on the scene and his disciples start eating grain on the Sabbath, which is not lawful for them to do. And so they accuse Jesus. They say, listen, you're breaking Sabbath code and therefore you're a sinner. That's really what they were getting at. They were trying to prove that he was not the Messiah by unearthing some sin that he had or that he was doing. And so um, that's the context of this passage as Matthew uh, lays this out for us. And as he records Jesus dealing with this, uh, we need to read that in light of what happened in 11. We'll connect those thoughts more as we get through this, but I think the first thing we find here this morning as Jesus is dealing with these accusations is he points to exceptions in the law. Exceptions in the law. Because every law that we have, whether it's legal or whatever, has an exception to it. There's always an exception. So if I want to drive 100 miles an hour down the highway right here, I will be pulled over. I will be ticketed. Um, maybe if I'm going 100, maybe more will happen. You know, you, you can't do that. That's breaking the law. It's breaking the law in, in a very bad way. Uh, but every once in a while, you see a police officer driving down the road at 100 miles an hour or an ambulance or Fire truck, that's an exception, right? They're going to help somebody. Or maybe even a common person, if they were driving and they had like a, a woman going into labor or someone who was bleeding to death and they were trying to get them to the hospital as quick as they possibly could, uh, the police officer might, once you called in and said, hey, I know the police officer's after me, but I got someone bleeding to death. I'm trying to get them to the hospital. They would probably have that policeman escort you the rest of the way because it's an exception to the rule. Now, every Law is different in each city, but uh, I asked the police officer in my congregation, would that be the case? And he's like, yeah, that'd probably be the case in our area. And so there are exceptions to every rule. Uh, you can't shoot bear. You can't just walk out here and shoot bear. Like, hey, look at the pretty brown bear. <laughs> you can't do that. You'll get in trouble for that. If you haven't been in Alaska long enough to know that, let me just be the one to warn you. You can't just go out and shoot the wildlife willy-nilly. However, there's an exception. If you're out minding your own business and a brown bear wanders up and wants to eat you and it starts attacking you, you can shoot the bear. And if you shoot the bear at that point, you probably won't be fined like you would be if you just went out and started laying them out. Okay? There's an exception to every rule. And Jesus here, I think, is looking at the law and saying, listen, guys, there's an exception here. And so he appeals to David and the priesthood and some other things. So he says uh, here regarding David, um, he says, look, David, there was a law that they couldn't eat the showbread. Only the priests were supposed to eat the showbread, but there's an exception, an exception to the rule because David's men were starving to death. And I think Jesus is pulling this out because the Pharisees had this problem where they would look at the law and gloss over some aspects of it. In fact, Jesus, when he talks to them, he's quite insulting to them. He says here in verse 3, Have you not read what David did? Well, if anybody had read what David did, it would be the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the legal keepers of the Old Testament law. They're one of the only people that could read, period. And they were the only ones that had access, regular access to the law. They were the keepers of the code. And for Jesus to come up and him not a Pharisee and to say, have you not read? Well, that was quite insulting to them. 
Of course they have read. It wasn't like Americans who have 30 Bibles sitting on their shelf, unread. They had just very limited access to the scripture, but those who could access it, they read it, they memorized it, they knew it like the back of their hand. They knew the scripture. They had certainly read the scripture. But I think what Jesus is getting at here, he's saying, yeah, of course you've read, but have you really considered? And that's some of us, right? We've read, but have we truly considered what we've read? Because the Pharisees had a theological framework like, that was very rigid and unwilling to bend. They said, this is who God is, this is who we are as Israel, and this is what the Messiah will be like. So in their minds, they had a Messiah who was going to come and was going to rule and to reign and to fight. That was their Messiah, the picture of the Messiah. And there are Old Testament scriptures that validate that belief. However, there are Old Testament passages that speak of a suffering servant Messiah as well. And they had not considered those as they were formulating their ideas about the Messiah. And of course, they've read them. Every Pharisee knew what Isaiah had to say about the suffering servant. Every Pharisee knew that there were passages in the Old Testament that spoke of the, the Messiah's suffering and bleeding and being beaten. Those are in there, and they had read them, but obviously they had not considered them enough to factor them in to what the Messiah would look like when he came. And then when Jesus dies on the cross, and he's beaten, and he fulfills all of these passages, they're unwilling to even consider that that had to happen before before he could come with his authority as a reigning ruler. And so I bring this back to us. Are we so rigid in our current theological convictions that we're unwilling to read the scriptures for what they are and to factor them into our current belief systems? I think some of us do this. Some of us are so fascinated with the God of love and forgiveness and mercy that we gloss over and overlook the passages that speak of his justice and his wrath. And some of us are so fascinated with his justice and his wrath that we gloss over and overlook and fail to consider the fact that God is merciful and God is loving. Some of us are so infatuated with an end times view that we are unwilling to consider some of the other passages that weigh heavily in, in another viewpoint. Some of us are so fascinated with God's election that we fail to see that God calls on us to make a choice. Some of us are so fascinated with passages that call on us to make a choice that we overlook the passages dealing with divine election. Okay, and we could go on and on and on and on, but oftentimes we choose what we are going to believe before we even get to the scripture that could inform that belief. And because we've already made a decision and we're very rigid in it, we just gloss over it and we don't consider it. And that's very Pharisaic of us. We are acting like a Pharisee at that moment. And Jesus is saying, read the Bible for what it is. It's the word of God. All of it's the word of God. All scripture is inspired and is profitable for rebuke and correction and training in righteousness, all scripture. 
Paul told them to consider the whole counsel of God, not just pieces of it. You can't piecemeal your theology together. You've got to consider everything that God says. And when you read all of what God says and you consider all of what God says, you're going to have to bend and break a little because we don't have the same mind as God. We don't have it all figured out. He's going to tell us something in his word that is counterintuitive to the way that we think. And if we don't allow that and for him to expand our thinking and to expand our belief system to include all of scripture, if we don't make way for that, then we're like the Pharisees. We're stiff-necked, we're hard-hearted. And so Jesus is confronting that in this passage when he says, Have you not read? And so he appeals to David. He says, David was an exception to the law. Yes, you were not supposed to eat the showbread. What is the showbread? That's the bread that was baked by the priest and was put inside of the tabernacle or the temple. It was right across from the uh, lampstand that was supposed to be continuously burning. And that light inside of the holy place would shine its light on the showbread. And after seven days or so, they would remove the showbread and the priests could eat it. Only the priest. Lucky. They got weak old bread. You can't eat the weak old bread. You're not a priest. They got to eat it. Only they got to eat it. It was not lawful for anyone else. This was part of the Levitical code. And yet David, the anointed of God, shows up with his men and they're starving. They're not going to make it if they don't get something to eat. And it's the only food available for them. And so the priests surrender it to David and he eats and The Bible does not speak to this as a negative thing. It doesn't speak to it as if they have broken the law or violated some code. It's as if this was allowed by God. It was an exception to the rule because there was extenuating circumstances that required mercy to be extended. David was not a priest, but yet the men in this passage in the Old Testament say as long as they're ritually clean they haven't violated any other like codes they're not being sexually immoral or anything like that if they've kept themselves clean then they can have the bread and so the bread was given to them the temple system here the the house of God here provided for the needs of the people the priesthood provided for the needs of the people The next thing we see, if you move on down in our passage, another exception to the law, we find this in verse 11. Jesus says to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You see, Jesus, once again, was appealing to exceptions to the law. Uh, In this case, he's not appealing to the written law, the Torah. He's appealing to the oral law, the oral Torah. Uh, We can read this oral Torah in the Mishnah and the Talmud. Uh, These are rabbinical writings that have been put down. But in Jesus' day, they were a very oral society. And so some of the law would be passed down orally. Now, that's not inspired scripture like our written law is. uh, But these were usually ways that the Old Testament law were applied and those would be passed down. So for instance, in our country, we have a spiritual law, church law, you know, we've got laws that we apply spiritually to ourselves, but then we have the law of the land out there. 
don't speed, um, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Pay your taxes. All, we've got all of those uh, provisions, all of those laws out there. But every once in a while, a scenario comes up, and we don't know whether someone's broken the law or not, so it goes to court. We say, is this uh, constitutional? Is this violating a law? And so they go to court, and then a rule is made, and once that rule is made in a court of law, it becomes a precedent and becomes new law for every generation following. And so they always appeal back to some um, trial that took place and say, because the ruling in this trial you're guilty because they deemed that that was an offense, that you were violating the Constitution, you were breaking the law. And so new laws are made and passed down based on uh, the judicial system. Well, in the Old Testament, they didn't have a spiritual set of laws and a um, law of the land. The Bible was the law of the land. But sometimes the law of the land, the Bible, in their case, the Old Testament, did not give you the very specific nuances necessary to figure out whether someone was guilty or innocent. And so in this case, that's what happens. Somebody's cow or sheep has fallen into a pit. And on one hand, the rabbi said, well, can you get it out? If you get it out on the Sabbath day, they've fallen into a pit. If you get it out on the Sabbath day, you're violating Sabbath. You're not allowed to pull on the Sabbath. You go to the Mishnah and the, the Talmud and you read. They've got 39 prohibited tasks on Sabbath. You can't pull. You can't weave. You can't collect grain. Uh, there are 39 things you cannot do on Sabbath or you are violating Sabbath rest. And so can you get the sheep or the ox out of the ditch? And they said, well, also in the Old Testament, it talks about how it's the foolish man who's not even kind to his beasts. You know, the wise man treats his beasts better than the fool treats his own kids. There, there are all these statements in the Old Testament that even animals should not be neglected. There's provisions for animal care as well. And so they're like, okay, we've got two laws here. Do we neglect the animal that falls in the ditch and break Sabbath or, or, and keep Sabbath? Or do we break Sabbath and take care of the animal? We've got to choose one here, and so the priests have to deliberate, and they've got to make a judicial decision that now becomes oral tradition and is the now oral law that's passed down from generation to generation. And Jesus is saying, look, you guys made provision for that. When you had to deliberate that in the past, in the Talmud and in the Mishnah, you can read on down, and there are provisions. If an ox falls in a ditch, the first thing they said is, if it can live in the ditch for a day, then put some food and water down there, let it live out the day until Sabbath has passed, and then we'll get it out. But then another situation arose. Well, what if it falls down in such a situation where it's like on its hind legs and you, you can't just drop food in its mouth? It's not going to eat in that uh, situation. So you might end up losing your ox. You would be neglecting your ox. It can't eat. It can't drink. What do you do then? And they're like, well, okay, in that situation... The new law is you can bring items to stuff under the ox to give it more and more leg you know, support to push itself out of the hole. So 
we could go on and on about all these provisions that are made, but Jesus is appealing to this process. He's saying there are exceptions that are made to every rule. You're allowing exceptions to be made for sheep and for oxen, but I'm trying to heal a man on the Sabbath, and you're not allowing for any exceptions here? He's saying, I think you guys have missed the mark on this one. But there are exceptions to the law. Sometimes a great need warrants an exception. Believe it or not, there were exceptions that women could indeed give birth on the Sabbath. If you believe that. Now, I thought they'd tell them to hold that in. And I thought every Jewish woman would have been trained to hold that baby in for the next 24 hours. And then you can have your baby on Sunday. Okay? Sabbath was Saturday for them. And so Sunday would have been a big birthing day for them. But nope, they came up with exceptions. Apparently that wasn't going to fly. And so there were exceptions. But even though they were giving birth, they had to make some other exceptions and accommodations to uphold Sabbath keeping. So the people treating the baby would usually have to be gathered from outside of Israel. Some maids to come in who weren't a part of the uh, covenant community. They would be the midwife. And um, there were certain things that you could do for the mom, certain things you couldn't do for the mom. And so they spelled it all out because that was Good Sabbath keeping while also not neglecting human life and allowing a mother to, you know, face birth giving alone with no accommodation. Uh, But Jesus is appealing to all this. He's saying, look, you make exceptions. So why are you not considering that in your theological framework? And it's because though they've read, they've not considered all of the scripture because the scripture makes it clear that there are some times where an exception will supersede the law. But not only does he appeal to exceptions, he also appeals to exemptions in the law. Now you say, what's the difference in an exception and an exemption? Well, an exception is when there is a circumstance that comes up after a law has been made and you have to deliberate on whether or not someone should be punished for violating the offense. And if you say no, in this circumstance, the law doesn't apply. So you've now made an exception to the rule. However, an exemption is when they're written in the law are situations that the law does not apply. Like it's just factored in right at the beginning. That this person does not have to obey this law. They are exempt from it. Uh, so, for instance, you can't take a gun into a bank. You can't take a gun into a bank. Especially outside of Alaska. You can't take a gun into a bank. Um, but a policeman can take a gun into a bank. I know when I was pastoring in Arkansas several years back, back then you could not take a gun into a church. But a policeman could take a gun into a church, a policeman can break the speed limit, you know, when they need to, um, not when they're just pleasure driving, but when they need to, they can break the law. That's just written into the code. As a teacher, there may be a no talking in the classroom policy, but that doesn't apply to the teacher. It's understood they are exempt. You know, every once in a while I'm doing my taxes and I get down there and it says, are you exempt from paying taxes? And I'm thinking, who do I have to kill to be that guy? Who is exempt from paying taxes? 
Somebody is. And if you're one of those people, I want to meet with you after service so you can give me the loophole I have to jump through to not have to pay taxes anymore. Everybody else has to pay taxes. It's the law of the land. Pay your taxes. But even the law acknowledges that somebody out there is exempt from paying taxes. And so it's just written into the law that these certain people owe no taxes. And so that's what an exemption is. And Jesus appeals to these exemptions in the law. He says, look, the priests, the priests are working on the Sabbath day. Everybody else is forbidden from working on the Sabbath day, but they got to work. They got to work on the Sabbath day. Maybe you have that conviction. I'm never going to work on Sunday. I believe it's the Lord's day. It's a day of rest. Well, can I apply that? Can Pastor Scott apply that? I mean, we only work one day a week and you're trying to say we can't work on that one day a week now. Yeah, it's a joke. <laughs> it's an exemption. Of course, pastors have to work on Sunday. Of course, the priests have to work on the Sabbath day. It's an exemption from the rule. And so Jesus is appealing to this. In Numbers 28, 9 through 10, it says that the priests have to be making a Sabbath day offering. There are still sins going on in Israel. They need sacrifices because they were in a sacrificial system they were supposed to have an atonement through the sacrificial system and the priests were the only ones who could make that you couldn't make it for yourself Saul got in trouble for that he lost the kingdom for that you don't get to make your own sacrifices you bring it to the priesthood they mediate between you and God and they have to be at work even on the Sabbath but everybody else the law applies there was an exemption so at this point we have to ask ourselves question when Jesus and his disciples are traveling and they eat grain, plucked on the Sabbath, is this an exemption? Is this an exception? And so we compare the stories, you know, in David's case, it was the king and his men, army of Israel. And it seemed, if you look at most people's interpretation, most commentaries and scholars, they would say David's people were legitimately starving to death. They were on the brink of collapse. Jesus and his disciples, probably not so much. They're just hungry. They missed the meal or they had a long day. It was time to eat. Um, but probably a different scenario. And so do they get the same exception as David and his men? To break Sabbath? If not, then is it an exemption status? You know, the priests could work on the Sabbath, but is Jesus a priest? Well, we know that the book of Hebrews says that he is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is this strange figure that shows up in Genesis, and he's called the Prince of Salem, which is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And this figure gets paid by Abraham, the father of the Jewish tribe. He gets paid a tenth, a tithe, and so they are tithing. It's like Israel is tithing to this mysterious figure who later on they say represented Jesus Christ, showing that Jesus is superior even to the Levitical priesthood because they come from Abraham, and Abraham was paying tithes to this other priest. But still, the Old Testament law doesn't say that any priest is exempt from working on the Sabbath. It's speaking to the Levitical priesthood. That was their duty. They represented Israel. And so the question still remains, is Jesus 
How, how is he exempt here? Maybe it's because he's God. Because he's God, he doesn't have to keep the Sabbath because God doesn't need to rest, even though God rested on the seventh day in Genesis. So these are questions I ask myself. When I read the scripture, I want to get to the bottom of, of all this. Sometimes I read the scripture and, and I'm quite troubled. I'm like, that doesn't make sense to me. So for instance, he's going through the, the land and they're eating grain and they were breaking Sabbath and the Pharisees call him on it because he's breaking a commandment. And Jesus answers by saying, David ate bread he wasn't supposed to. And I'm sitting there scratching my head saying, what does that have to do with Sabbath? You didn't even bring up Sabbath in your argument, Jesus. What are you getting at? And, and I think Jesus wants us to be honest with the text and to ask these hard questions and to think because that's what the Pharisees weren't doing. <laughs> they were just glossing over things that maybe didn't make sense or didn't fit into their little theological bubble and they were just glossing over it going on to the next thing until they ran into a passage that they're like oh yeah I like this one because it talks about Israel being at the top and and law and Torah you know they liked those and they glossed over the others because maybe it didn't fit in so it didn't make sense well I'm reading this and I'm like something's not fitting in something's not making sense what am I missing here and so I studied and studied and studied and now I think I finally found what it was I was looking for what connected this example of David to this example of the priest what did they have in common that had to do with Sabbath and the argument that Jesus was making which takes us to our final point this morning which not only does he talk about exceptions to the law, exemptions from the law, but I think what he really is getting at, the major thrust, is the intentions of the law. The intentions of the law. You see, throughout the book of Matthew, there's a motif that runs through the entire book that ties it all together, and one of those motifs is that God is not just looking for external action, but he's looking for us to internalize the law based on the heart of the law. And if you go back to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see this in play. Jesus says, you have heard it said not to murder. But I say unto you, if you hate your brother and speak a foul word to your brother, you're violating the law. Well, why did Jesus say that? Because there's so many Jews who believed in the Torah and they upheld the law of God. And what they were doing is say, I hate your stinking guts. I wish you were dead. I will make your life miserable. I will be as unkind to you as I possibly can until the day you die, but I will never kill you. And Jesus is like, you, you're not good. <laughs> you missed the reason that the law thou shalt not kill was even put down. It wasn't put down just so you wouldn't take their life. It was put down so you would value their life. And it, that is to play out. I mean, there are so many other commands that follow it, like you need to put rails around your rooftop so that people don't fall off. And that was connected to the thou shalt not kill because you're protecting their life. It's not just don't take their life, it's protect their life because you love their life. Because they are made in God's image. That was the heart and intention of the law, and they were missing it. Jesus goes on and says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. You've heard it said that, but I say to, unto you, don't even look at a woman with lust. Why did he have to say that? Because there were Jewish people who were married, and they said, you know what? This woman over here would be such a, a better wife. I wish I was with her. I fantasize about her. I, I look at her, and I think, man, I wish she was mine, but I won't 
I won't cheat on my wife because it's against the law. And Jesus is saying, you basically just did. Because that law was given not just to prevent people from physically acting on those desires, but the law was given so that you would be faithful to your wife the way that Christ is faithful to his church and so that you would love the wife of your youth the rest of your days and demonstrate the faithfulness of God. That's why. Not just the flesh, but the mind and the heart as well, to be faithful. And when you deviate from that, you've missed the intention of the law altogether. And Jesus was making that very, very clear. That the laws come to reveal the heart of God and who he is. And he's a faithful God. He's a loving God. He's a true God. So don't lie. Don't lie, because he's true. And they reflect his character, and we're supposed to mimic that. And so Jesus is getting at the intent of the law here so that we will internalize the reason that these laws were given. So we get to the Sabbath. What's the intent of the Sabbath? The Jews were using Sabbath law. The Pharisees were using Sabbath laws to beat men down. Don't you dare eat grain when you're hungry. Don't you dare do that work that you need to do because you are breaking Sabbath law. And one of the other gospel writers makes it very clear that Sabbath was made for man. Not man for Sabbath. The intent of Sabbath was to give man rest. Okay? To lighten their load. And now that the Pharisees and other Jews have added all this extra fluff of oral tradition onto the law, making it heavier than it was ever intended to be. And they're also, instead of lifting man up, they're beating men down with this law. That wasn't why it was given. It is to be honored to the Old Testament Jewish community. They needed to obey it. They needed to, uh, you know, just not neglect Sabbath keeping. And Jesus didn't. But on this occasion, he chooses to allow his disciples to take grain. And then we ask ourselves, why? What, what do these two examples have in common? And so the first one, we go back to David in verse 3. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God? I want you to circle that in your mind or maybe physically in your paper. House of God. What is the house of God? Well, when we think house of God, we usually think temple. The temple wasn't built yet. David, uh, he got all the stuff together for building the house of God, but it was his son Solomon who would end up building the temple. So prior to that, you had a tabernacle, but once the Israelites entered the promised land, the tabernacle doesn't come into play a whole lot. You've got the Ark of the Covenant that's down in Shiloh for a while, and it moves around. And so these men come to this place where God's special presence is dwelling. And where the showbread is. So this is probably where all the furnishings of the ark or of the tabernacle have been set up. And the priests are there doing their work. So this is the house of God because this is where God's divine presence is dwelling. David comes there. He comes there looking for help. Because where else would a godly man or woman go when they need help? They'd go to the Lord. They'd go to his house to the place where he dwells, and that's where they would find help in their time of need. And God's priesthood in no way shunned David and sent him away in need. Mercy was extended. The house of God became a vessel through which God's mercy was extended to David and his men in a time of need. 
So Jesus uses this example, and I think he uses the, the phrase house of God here to bring to our minds the fact that that was the vessel through which mercy was flowing. We get down to the next passage where he talks about the priests, and it says that, have you not read, in verse 5, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? Where are they at? In the house of God. The temple is the house of God. So the priests are operating in the house of God. Why are they there? Because people have spiritual needs. They're still sinners. They need Sabbath offerings. And only the priesthood can offer them. God's not giving them a day off on the Sabbath. Because on the Sabbath, people still have needs. And God's saying, their needs are going to be met. It's going to flow through my house as a vessel to reach them. My house is the vessel through which people's needs are met. That's the two things I think these examples have in common. And then right after this, Jesus quotes Hosea chapter 2. And this is the second time that Matthew's referred to this passage. In verse 7 it says, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. You see, Jesus is emphasizing mercy. That's what this whole passage is about, is about mercy extended to people in need, whether it's their physical needs, their emotional needs, their spiritual needs. He's saying that God's house is to be a vessel through which their needs are met. And that's how God gets glory, when he uses a vessel through which his mercy flows to other people, and they can see and they can honor and glorify God. Verse 6 is very telling, though, why Jesus is appealing to this. Why is Jesus bringing this up in this debate about Sabbath? Well, it says that David entered the house of God and had his needs met. The priests are in the house of God so that needs are met. But then Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the house of God is here. If the house of God for David met his needs, and the house of God for Israel met their needs, then how much more are my disciples going to have their needs met when the house of God is walking and talking right here, right now, in the flesh in Jesus Christ? John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word in the Greek is skeneo, meaning to tabernacle among. Jesus is a walking, talking tabernacle. He is the house of God, and so he is not going to allow his disciples to go hungry when the house of God is right there with him. Mercy comes from the house of God. Needs are met from the house of God. All of the nations were invited to the house of God. It was to be a house of prayer for all people. And the Pharisees were trying to beat these men down with a legal code. When the Jesus, the Messiah, who is greater than the legal code, is there. Matthew's made that clear. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the better temple. And so, of course, he's going to meet their needs. They're missing the fact that the Savior is there and the Savior is better than all that. He has a rest that far exceeds Sabbath rest. He's come to give rest that is permanent, that transcends a single 24-hour day, 
that carries on into eternity and is never ending. That's the kind of rest that Jesus comes to offer. And he's saying the little piddly 24-hour period that you've set aside and put all your legal burdens upon that becomes more cumbersome than any other day. He said, that's not what was intended when the Sabbath was created. It was created to point to me. And I am your Sabbath rest. I am your Sabbath rest. You see, Matthew 11 sheds a lot of light on Matthew 12. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Why do you take a yoke upon you? Why do you yoke yourself to something? Well, a yoke was put on two animals to bind them together so that they could walk together. And a lot of the times they would take a new animal that hadn't been trained properly to walk a straight path and to respond to goading and all the other um, commands that would be given. And so they would connect it to a stronger bull or a stronger, stronger ox that had already been broken in and would walk where the farmer wanted him to walk. And so now Jesus says, take your yoke upon me. And he uses the yoke because in the Old Testament, uh, not in the Old Testament, uh, the written Old Testament, but in the oral traditions, in the Mishnah and the Talmud, you will find many references to the yoke of the Torah. It's a very common expression. I read that in a commentary, didn't believe it, went and looked it up, and yep, it's all over the place. The yoke of the Torah, the yoke of the Torah. The Jewish society believed, especially the Pharisees, believed that you needed to yoke yourself to Torah. You needed to bind yourself to the Torah. But here's the problem. Man's rebellion and stubbornness is stronger than Torah. Torah could not keep men on the straight and narrow. It failed over and over and over again. It was like you took a stubborn ox and yoked it to a sheep. And the ox just yanks the sheep all over the place. And they never tread a straight path. Jesus says, I'm stronger. I'm stronger than your temple. I'm stronger than your Torah. I'm stronger than your Moses. I'm stronger than your David. You may be rebellious. You may be a stiff-necked people. But if you bind yourself to me, you yoke yourself to me, I'll drag you down the right path. You may try to steer away at times, but you bind yourself to me, and I will drag you to the Father. I will make sure that you are never lost. You will never wander away. You will always be pleasing to the king. Because Jesus, he has the power to do that. He is the vessel that mercy flows through to get to the people in need. People like me. People who need righteousness, who can't make it on my own. Jesus yokes himself with me and he gives me his righteousness. He drags me into righteousness. Not, but not by any strength of my own, but by his own. He's stronger. He's stronger. And then we get to the New Testament portion where Paul's writing. And Paul says, you know, Jesus, he's, he's ascended up to heaven now. So where's the temple of God now? Oh, it's you. You are the temple of God. 
You are the temple of God. And in David's time of need, the temple of God provided through mercy what he needed. In Israel's time of need, the temple of God through the priesthood provided what they needed. During the disciples' time, Jesus, the house of God, the temple of God, the walking, talking tabernacle, he was the vessel through which mercy flowed to the disciples to meet their needs. And now what's left on this earth is you and me as the temple of God. And there is a lost and dying world out there. There is a world full of physical need, mental need, and spiritual need. And you and I are the only hope they have. We are the vessel that God is using to extend mercy to those people. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That, that's a Jewish expression. It doesn't mean that he hates sacrifice and he doesn't want it. It means you're comparing two things. And if you have to have one above the other, it's, it's the mercy part. Of course, God wanted the sacrifices. He demanded them. But if you give sacrifices and you're not merciful, if you honor Sabbath in the letter of the law, but you don't get to the intent of it and extend it to be merciful to people in need, then you've missed it altogether. You may come to this church and you may sit in these chairs and you may put money in the offering plate and you may do various things sacrificially, but if you're not taking what you get from the pulpit and from the word and taking it out into the world and meeting the needs of the people out there, then you've missed the mark. You've been sacrificial. You've given up your time. You've given up your money, but you're not doing the job. And God's saying, I desire mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So the call this morning is for us to yoke ourselves to Christ. Unyoke yourself from philosophies, ideologies, legalism. Unyoke yourself from those and yoke yourself to the only one who is able to steer you down the right path. And that's Jesus Christ. Come to him in saving faith this morning. For you'll find no other path to the Father. You'll find no other path to shalom, to rest and to peace for your souls, than in the name Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together in your word. We thank you for your call upon us to be merciful. Lord, let us spend our days combing the scriptures, finding out how to be merciful, in what way we can extend mercy. Lord, let us be evangelistic. Let us be on mission for you. Lord, let us meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in the church and for those outside of it who don't know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, let our kindness and our compassion be evident and let it be attached to your name. Let us not just be kind for kindness' sake, but Lord, let us be kind for your sake. And Lord, let people see and be drawn into amazement and wonder and awe at the sacrifices willing to be made in mercy for those that we don't even know. And Lord, may they respond in saving faith, Lord. Let it all be for your glory, and I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.